Welcome to Ether, the podcast for Ether, a journal of strategic air power and space power. I'm Dr. Laura Thurston Goodrow, and today I'm joined by Dr. Anna Bada and Dr. Ginta Palobinskis. Dr. Bada is an associate professor in the Department of International Securities at Air War College. Dr. Bada's teaching and research interests include Russian politics and foreign policy, Eastern European politics, and the politics of authoritarian states. Her book, The Russian Minorities in the Former Soviet Republics, Secession, Integration, and Homeland, was published in November 2021. Dr. Bada holds a PhD in political science and conflict studies from the University of North Texas. She grew up in Hungary during the Cold War. Dr. Palabinskis is a professor of political science at West Virginia State University. She earned her PhD in public policy from George Mason University, and her research is cross-national and focuses on the global themes of democracy, geopolitics, and security. She's the author of two books and is currently working on a third focused on NATO, Russia, and shifting security patterns. Anna and Ginta, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So to start our conversation, I'm very excited about talking to you both about uh, current events. Um, but before we get into that, I kind of would like to ask you both, and I don't care who goes first, what projects you're currently working on. Just a little more detail. I sort of, we touched on it a little bit, but a little more detail. Sure, I, I can go first. Uh, <clears throat> there are a couple of uh, projects that I have started before uh, before the invasion uh, of Russia of Ukraine um, this February. Uh, one of them is Ukraine's foreign policy role conceptions on the world stage, and it, it is a book chapter. And the other one is actually Russia's role in the Indo-Pacific. So both of these projects have been uh, started, and then the war occurred, and, and things have changed. And I had to add a lot of things to, uh, yeah. to each of these chapters, right? Um, I can review them briefly, just a few words about each. Sure. So the, the first project on, on the, the foreign policy role conceptions, I review uh, this uh, this idea through the four stages from, from independence of, of Ukraine, from the Orange Revolution to the Maidan Revolution in 2014, um, and then until the, the Russian invasion. So I look at socialization and, and the pressures that Ukraine faced in each of these stages uh, from the West, from from Russia, the international community, and how, how the bargaining process changes over time. And some of the preliminary findings I have is uh, that this, this self-image as an independent actor strengthened over time, and uh, I'm still in the process of updating the, the last uh, stage after the invasion. Um, and the second uh, project, Russia in the Indo-Pacific, is essentially Russia hasn't been a main player there up until now, but it it is becoming more important. Um, yes, so, so some of it has to do, of course, with the the economic sanctions associated uh, with the war, and then because Europe is cutting back uh, energy coming from Russia, so the mar market is shifting to, to right. Asia. Um, and then also we are watching what uh, China and Russia will do, uh, especially given Taiwan. So I look at some of the elements of cooperation and, and what, what Russia's role is in the Indo-Pacific. Those sound really interesting. I, I'm looking forward to seeing them finished and in print. <laughs> Thanks. Ginta, and what can you tell us about what you're working on? 
Well, uh, as you mentioned, I'm working on on a book um, focused on NATO, Russia, and shifting security patterns. And like Anna, I started the work prior to the invasion, um, thinking that I would be talking uh, basically up to Crimea in 2014, and then analyzing uh, after that. So the work is going to explore or is exploring the interactions between NATO and Russia, um, and how those interactions have uh, shape the transatlantic security environment over time. And also, uh, it provides some insights into the future of transatlantic peace. So it's both historical and then looking ahead at what we can expect to see. So as with Anna's projects, this covers a lot of ground. Um, and there is a lot of ground to cover. Hard to determine what to put in and what to leave out because everything seems very important and very interesting um, when you're up close. Um, but so far, so good. I'm looking mainly to contribute to a great understanding of NATO and its role in maintaining peace in the international security environment, um, uh, to contribute to a better understanding of existing patterns in Russia's approach to international relations and understanding the motivations behind them. And also, I'm interested in showing um, or, or gaining greater insight into how domestic and foreign and security policies of Western democracies and Russia work to impact the regional uh, and global security environments, as well as NATO's ability to maintain peace within them. Well, that's a that's a small project. <laughs> Not ambitious at all. No. Again, it, like Anna's, it sounds um, like I can't wait to see uh, to ha have it in print. We'll review both of them. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, um, so you know, now we turn obviously to uh, the matter at hand. So much happening, especially this last week, with you know the supposed sabotage and the gas leak in the, the Baltic and the question of tactical nukes. And it's amazing the history that we're sort of living through now. Um, Russians trying to leave to avoid the draft, countries closing their borders today, I read, and it's amazing. So um, you both recently traveled to Eastern Europe. And we'll ask Anna first, what did you hear from the people regarding the current situation and the war between Russia and Ukraine? What's the mood over there? Mm, right. So I, I, I visited my family in, in Hungary this summer, and uh, mostly people are, are worried about the upcoming winter. The The Hungarian government has um, has put a cap on energy, which, which means that up to a certain point, uh, people pay the regular price, but afterwards they have to pay a much higher price. Uh, and usually people go over over that limit. So people are really worried that they are not going to be afford, able to afford the high gas, gas prices. Also, I think that the the mood and, and the opinion of the people reflect the Hungarian opposition overall, the government opposition to the economic sanctions against Russia, because they argue that it will hurt the people more than uh, in Hungary than, than in Russia. And they are reluctant or really unwilling to pay the price of the sanctions. Um, some people even go as far as saying that uh, this war is the U.S.'s fault, if you can imagine. Wow. Um, there's this, this uh, some conspiracy elements even that uh, it is the U.S. that is buying of Ukrainian land, and and so it's um, it's rather uh, a rather 
interesting view at this. But I think mostly what is happening that there's such close proximity to what is happening and to the war uh, that it, it worries people. I have a, a little nephew, he's, he's three years old. And when we were there, he said um, there were some, some noises. It sounded like gunshots, probably some kids were playing. And he said, oh, Oh, did the Russians arrive? So he, he's like a very young three-year-old kid. So so that's uh, that's that's the that's a report from the field, Hungary. It's um, we live so far from that. It's really interesting to hear that. Mm-hmm. Um, and Ginta, um, and to you, you also traveled there. What what are you seeing over there? What are you hearing? So. I spent the bulk of my summer in Lithuania, and to sort of put it in context uh, for people, it's a it's a country in Northern Europe where NATO membership is viewed very, very positively. And historically, Lithuania has been sort of on the cutting edge of change in that region. It was the first Soviet-occupied country of the countries that had been absorbed by the Soviet Union to actually declare independence. And then it worked relentlessly to uh, consolidate its democracy and, and integrate itself into the West. So there's this some feeling within the country that that it has to respond to things, and it's it's a sort of public discussion uh, on the political issues of the region all the time. So I wasn't very surprised uh, when I got there this summer and found that signs of support for Ukraine were very visible everywhere, and it was and the support was very palpable. So when I got out of the plane and and we got into the airport, there are signs everywhere saying, we love Ukraine. And I thought, well, that's very nice. Um, And walked outside and a bus drove by and, and, uh, you know, where it tells you where the bus goes to. uh, Instead of the location, it said Vilnius Hearts Ukraine. Everywhere, uh, there were signs of of Ukraine. The Ukrainian flag is flying in various places that you wouldn't expect a a flag to fly in construction sites, uh, various places, wherever you could hang a flag, you, you were most likely to see Ukraine. Flag. So the conversations at the bus station, the central bus station, too, were interesting because both the young and the old were talking about the war in Ukraine and also expressing true empathy for the people of Ukraine. There are calls uh, for people to donate for the war effort in Ukraine. Refugees are being welcomed in Lithuania. Um, there's Ukrainian television commercials aimed at the refugees to welcome them and make them feel um, safe and and secure and welcome in the country. Communities are organizing events uh, to make children who have lost their homes feel like they still have a childhood. Uh, Sort of the idea is your child has a bike that they're not using, give it to a child who could use it, uh, who's here from Ukraine. So overall, as I said, there's a palpable sense of both moral and material support for Ukrainians um, that are displaced by by war. Um, and it's it's interesting because Lithuania was the first country to, to provide military equipment to Ukraine. Um, so it has government support. But the public also crowdfunded uh, Bayraktar for, for the Ukrainian effort. And it's not unusual to see a television commercial come on somewhere in the mall, you know, on the screens that are there that says, you know, donate to Ukraine, the, the effort to support Ukraine. And people whip out their cell phones uh, to actually um, send send their money. So in short, the, the thing that I came away with, and I was very pleasantly uh, touched by it, was that Lithuania is a place where Ukraine enjoys both government official government support, but it also enjoys a wholehearted support from the public that is watching very closely what's happening and opening its arms to the people of Ukraine. So this is fascinating. I feel so fortunate that 
we managed in just the two of you on to get these two really different views from Europe and and the governments and the publics. And I I think that's a nuance that we tend to miss over here, the general public and even even the you know, those more focused on national security. It's easy to lump. Europe into one block and everybody thinks the same. And this is fascinating. This is really um, from the front lines, <laughs> literally. So that's great. So uh, get to for the next one. We'll start with you. So how has the war then impacted your professional life um, with your students here in the States? I'm, you know, I'm curious about what their perspective is, because you both also have different students. You've got adults and you've got one of you has, you know, a younger population. One of you has a more mature professional population. So, uh, so Ginta. Well, you know, uh, it's, it's one of those situations where without a doubt, the war in Ukraine has been sobering. Uh, and it's, it's also been extremely illuminating. So for the sobering part, as a scholar, much like Anna, I've been focused on the post-Soviet region and watching the developments there and looking for pieces to sort of fill out the puzzle of our understanding of what's happening there and why it happens. So I focused on democratization processes, energy security, and ultimately on the recurrent patterns that we see that might explain some of the things that are going on today. And it's been gratifying to see how much of the analysis has been right uh, and how much of it we've gotten right over time. And it's it's also uh, been very gratifying to see how Western governments are starting to fill in those gaps that scholars have found and been sort of knocking on the door saying, you know, energy security is something we need to worry about. We need to diversify. And I, I have to laugh because I was with some friends who we have been talking about energy security for years. And uh, when uh, sort of look came from policymakers saying, gosh, we never saw this coming. And I thought, well, we did for 20 years. So <laughs> um, this is an issue. But it's also been very gratifying to see how engaged um, students are in the conversation with regard to Ukraine. And it's wonderful to see the level uh, and the and the enthusiasm that they bring to the conversation. So just to give you sort of an illustration, my upper division uh, class students uh, don't even wait for class to begin. And my lower division students laugh because they say, I've never seen a student rush into a class and sit down, you know, during the passing period. Um, and these guys are like at the door getting in there. And they begin the conversation before everyone's even settled in. They talk about the newest developments. They talk about um, the reactions to it. Some some of the fellows uh, in those classes are actually part of the military, uh, so they have concerns. But basically, the students have indicated and they've shown through their conversation that they're following it closely enough that they understand the broader implications of the war in Ukraine. And they're concerned about the potential ripple effect with regard to increased imperialism across the globe. So they're making connections uh, with what they're seeing in Ukraine and the relationship between Russia and Ukraine. And they're making connections between events in Europe uh, with things that they're seeing in the Middle East and Asia. And specifically, they're, they're interested and they talk a lot about the relationship between China and Taiwan. So those are, those are sort of the things that, that come through in the conversations that start way before class. That's wonderful. I'm renewed in my faith. I am too. I have people. to say, it's very exciting to say that. <laughs> uh, and and Anna, tell us about your students and how it's a, this has affected your your work life and your students. Yes, it's um it's actually actually quite interesting. All of a sudden, there's this renewed 
uh, or there's this new interest uh, in Russia that we we haven't seen before as much, uh, despite the fact that you know this war has been going on for a long time, just in a different way, much more in a in a covered a covered way essentially. So we are in the middle of uh, redesigning the curriculum mm-hmm. and uh, putting way more great power emphasis and way more material on Russia. Um, the Great Power Studies course will include um, several additional aspects on Russia, uh, much more on the government and the economy, a case study on the Ukrainian war, Russian worldviews and strategies. Also, especially uh, given um, that at our college is key, the Russian military, we are spending more attention uh, than that. And of course, we have to update most of the material on, on our regional security studies classes, right. which, which has, has changed dramatically, right? And then, there, of course, there's a lot of demand for lectures on base. I I have done so many uh, so many lectures, and and you know it's it's every time there's this this interest, and there's so many questions after you finish the lecture. People come up to you and what do you think? How how should we do? And they are really interested, and they have various viewpoints and ideas. And um, and then finally, I have a um, a professional studies paper student, uh, Sean. We are working on a uh, on a paper about Russian air power. How come the Russian military has produced such a lackluster performance? Essentially, because that's not what we thought. Right. That's that's what's happening at at our college. Oh, that's tremendous. So finally, as we kind of turn to the future from looking at the situation abroad, the effect, you know, here on students and in academia to kind of, again, to turn looking forward, both of you, I'm interested and Anna, we'll start with you. Can you offer some thoughts on the future of the Russian war, including implications for Eastern Europe and Europe and NATO and the United States and and possibly even uh, Taiwan and the Indo-Pacific? Right. Um, big question. Um, my prediction is that this is going to be a long war, a very drawn out conflict, maybe even 10 years. It's going to go in, in phases, come and go, depending on the time period, how intense this this conflict is going to be. I think that what this has accomplished was um, the strengthening of the NATO alliance. That's something we we didn't think would happen to this extent. We've talked a lot about strategic autonomy, but now this has turned on uh, tremendously. And also this increased defense spending of the European countries, now it went into into overdrive uh, much more so than in the past and much more so when we have that we have uh, imagined however i'll have to bring back uh, bring us back to to the reality that not everybody agrees with this this collective policy and then hungary does not want to supply Ukraine with weapons, and it was not interested in allowing uh, the transit of these weapons either. Now that has changed at least. So in addition to that, Europe will have to deal with the refugee problem uh, for a long time as well. And the economic impact of sanctions, of the sanctions is enormous. And uh, uh, if you if you think about it, this, this economic decoupling has a limit as to how much the population can absorb, how much the population can really pay for 
because it really is the people who are paying for the impacts. But something of this magnitude hasn't happened before. Cutting off a major gas and oil exporter hasn't occurred before. However, I am actually surprised at the speed of how this is going. Um, since February, Europe has reduced oil consumption, Russian oil consumption by two thirds. And uh, but at the same time, Russia has also cut off oil on their end. So uh, that is my uh, that is my projection, and that this is what we will have to deal with on the long term. Many, many, many things to keep in mind for for the governments of every European country. Economic, long-term economic pain and and the attendant consequences that second and third order effects that come with that. So certainly, yeah. That's right. And Ginta? Well, I agree with Anna that the war on Ukraine has huge implications, not only for Ukraine and not just for the post-Soviet Union uh, or the Soviet uh, region, but but it does have huge implications for the world. And we've seen uh, countries across the world being affected already due to the grain shortage um, and and the inability uh, to get grain when they need it in, in the face of hunger. So I think, though, that one of the hugest implications uh, for the world is that depending on how the war goes, in part, it signals how much room there is for imperialistic powers to emerge uh, in the world. And I think we have a number of countries that are watching with great interest to see how Russia will fare, uh, because it may determine to some extent uh, what they decide to do and when they decide to do it. So a great deal has happened this fall, as, as we've all been watching, that seems to indicate to me, that Russia's power is declining worldwide. And one of the examples that I would point to is that countries that previously bought weapon systems from Russia seem to be rethinking those purchases and rethinking whether they're going to continue um, to buy their their weapons from Russia um, after seeing uh, Russia's uh, performance in Ukraine. And also, as Anna mentioned, uh, NATO's unity is uh, rising as publics that uh, previously questioned the the very need for the alliance after the end of the Cold War have come to realize that it really does remain the most effective means of ensuring ensuring transatlantic peace, and it probably will be uh, the best bet for years to come. So while it's it's always dicey to make predictions, I will I will make some as well. So I think that Russia's war by choice has changed NATO's calculus uh, of the situation faced by the Central, Eastern, and Northern European countries. And I think that it has helped many people to develop a greater understanding of how Russia operates with its modus operandi being to enter a country uh, and to stay. Uh, We saw that in Moldova, then we saw that in Georgia, and now we see that in Ukraine. And I think that this understanding of how Russia operates, or this greater understanding by a greater number of people, will uh, lead to a greater interaction with and support for countries that are interested in joining the alliance. I think that people will start calculating that it is um, to our advantage to consider letting more people in rather than sort of repeating that we have expansion fatigue, that we're not interested in enlarging. I think that greater decisiveness on the part of NATO and Europe in their relations with Central, Eastern and Northern Europe uh, without a view of pacifying Russia uh, will counterintuitively, for some people, 
lead to um, a reduction in tensions with Russia? Because I, I know that after the Cold War ended, many of the Russian scholars and people who came to the United States were talking about how much easier it was when Russia knew where it stood with respect to the West. Um, it makes it easier to act on both sides, really. So as a result, uh, I think that the alliance will grow, uh, and Sweden and Finland have already declared their desire to join. So their their years of neutrality have given way to a desire uh, to join the alliance for their own sake. And also, I think the Europeans are more than happy to have them because the more widespread the alliance, the greater the prospect for an enduring transatlantic peace. And I'll leave it at that. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Any saved rounds, as they say in the military final closing thoughts? Anna, do you have anything? I guess maybe just one. Um, Slava Ukraini. And that's that's what I will close with. Thank you. Thank you. Ginta? I will agree with with Anna. I think a great deal of respect uh, belongs to the Ukrainian people because they have been willing to stand up and fight uh, for themselves and their country. I think that it puts uh, the rest of us on on much better footing uh, with respect uh, to some of the the battles that are sure to come um, with regard to the international order and with regard to international security. And again, I can only emphasize that the more we pull together, the more uh, NATO countries uh, work together, the more likely we are to come out uh, into um, a world that is peaceful and uh, the, the peace is enduring. I wholeheartedly agree. Thank you both for joining us on the podcast today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you very much, Laura.